Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I want to bring to you a message this morning, a continuation of the message that I've been titling, Appreciating a Woman's Value. For three weeks now, we have been examining the words of Pablo as he's written to Timothy about women. And in them, we've seen how marvelous women are. We've seen this by examining verses 9 through 10, where we see a woman's character. And then we saw it last week in verses 11 through 14, examining her capabilities. And now we see her condition in verse 15. So I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. First Timothy chapter 2. Beginning in verse 8, once again. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Verse 1, chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not a violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well and with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You may be seated. One of the easiest things to do is to preach up, or stand up and preach against the culture. As Christians... When we watch the culture go wayward, the first reaction we often have is disbelief, surprised by both how far and how quickly the culture can wander. And then the second reaction is often disappointment. And so our tendency can be to preach at the culture and against the culture. But we must remember they are the culture and often not in Christ. If we aren't careful we can make the culture our enemy rather than see them as a people who are lost and in need. And there's a significant difference in those two perspectives. If the culture is our enemy, we will seek to eradicate it. But if we see the culture is lost, we will seek to evangelize it. For the last three weeks, we have been going through the teachings of women and about women in second chapter of Timothy. And with each week, I brought up some sort of discussion about the culture. This has been necessary. 
We are living in a period of history that I would call sexual colonialism. Colonialism is that term derived from the time of colonialization, when the nations of the world, and especially those of Europe, set out to colonize the rest of the world. Most of this is often associated with England now, because there was a time when they had colonized quite a bit of the world and still have holdings elsewhere. The idea behind this, the problem with colonialism, is that in the process of colonizing, it forces one group to domineer over another group, often forcing that group that had been native to, to bend to the culture that is conquering them, offering the people no choice but to forego their own culture and conform to the new culture. The reason I call our current state of matter sexual colonialism is because that's what we see in the sexual revolution. Being forced to bend to the will of a group of people as they try to conquer the rest of the world or the rest of the nation. It attempts to force everyone to bend to its will in order to advance its agenda. And so indeed, I would say it is sexual colonialism. The effect of that is we've taken biblical principles, words directly from the Lord's mouth, and we've reframed them, or the people have reframed them, and then reformed them to fit that new cultural viewpoint. The result of this is that when we come to verses 9 through 15 of 1 Timothy, we have no choice but to address the culture. For the most part, these verses are not that difficult. We've made them hard simply by allowing the culture to define them rather than allowing Christ to define them, even though they're his words. So these words are worth preaching, but I have no choice but to preach them except in the light of the culture. So we need to preach them so that we can interpret them according to Christ rather than according to the culture. This morning we come to the final verses, or final verse of chapter 2, verse 15. Of all the verses from 9 through 15, this one is probably the most difficult to biblically interpret. But we will see, like all the other verses, we will see a woman's tremendous value but we will see it because of her condition in Christ and her creation by Christ. So I want you to note first the charge, the charge. Before us, we have an interesting verse, and the first part simply reads, yet she will be saved through childbearing. This verse provides a unique teaching, and it confounds most people when they read it. It is confusing to know exactly what Paul means when he says she will be saved. Before we get into the details of this text, to determine its significance, I think it's really important for us to see something from this verse. When Paul writes, yet she will be saved through childbearing, the tone of that is very positive. It conveys something about the Christian life, a positive aspect about the Christian life. First off, the notion that a woman can be saved is positive and good, a point that should induce joy, not contention. And then it says, how will she be saved? Through childbearing. 
If a woman's salvation is a good thing, then childbearing must be a good thing as well. The bringing up this point here of children is spoken of in joyfulness. Not just here, but childbearing and children in general are spoken of in joyfulness throughout Scripture. And yet we're in a society at this point that really sees children not as a blessing, but as a burden. It's not uncommon to have people view children really just as a necessary evil, as a means to an end. About once a year, I read an article about flying in which someone proposes some sort of restrictions or regulations about children on a plane. Sometimes it's an increase in cost for children. Sometimes it's saying that planes and companies need to designate specific sections on planes for children. And then there are others who just advocate for completely children-free flights. The most recent that article that I read was indeed an article of an airline considering that very proposition, an, an airline out of Europe. The frequency of people trying to push that is indicative of the mindset that people have about children. This isn't the only movement, but we see this in other realms as well. And there, there are movements now urging people to limit the number of children they have or urging people to not have any children at all. In some places, children are means to an end. When we were in Argentina, I remember a point many, many years ago, doing ministry in a very poor neighborhood, a very poor area, and it was known for its drugs and its crime and its poverty. And there was this family that was faithful in coming to church regularly. Let me rephrase that. The, the children were faithful to coming to church regularly. Dad hadn't been in the picture for years. Mom stayed home. The oldest of the children, who was about 14 at that time, was responsible for all of his other siblings. And he was the one who got them ready for church every week. And not just on Sundays only, but he got them ready for church at other times during the week as well. One time we walked by their house. And I remember walking by, and, and it was a typical place in that neighborhood. It was a one-room, maybe two-room mud shack made out of mud and twigs, metal roof. On the roof was a satellite dish. And one day I asked about the family. And what I learned was that dad wasn't around. And basically, mom had had multiple kids by multiple people. And the reason she did that was because the more kids she had, the more money she got from the government. Children weren't a blessing for her. They were a means to an end. They were expendable to her. Not blessings to be cared for, but merely a means to get something that she had wanted. But the Lord's view is very different. While secularism teaches that children are burdened, Scripture teaches they're a blessing. The psalmist declares... Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Children are seen as a heritage, a gift given by the Lord. The Lord looks upon children with joy and compassion. 
We see this at the response of Mary when she receives the angel's word and learns that she's pregnant, and specifically pregnant with the Messiah. She shows her delight in the Lord's gift. Consider Hannah, 1 Samuel, which we read this morning in our scripture reading. Chapter 1 says that the Lord had closed her womb in verse 5. And then it says, and her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So Hannah's lack of children was now being used as a weapon against her. But then it says in verse 20, And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And he was called, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And so at that birth of a son, what does Hannah do? We read it this morning. She rejoices. She praises the Lord. And we read of that in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Such a response of joy and praise of the Lord is only warranted if we truly believe that children are indeed a blessing. If children are not a blessing, then our verse this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is not a blessing, it's a curse. But because they're a gift, we can read this verse that she will be saved through childbearing. We can read it with great joy because it speaks of something grand. It speaks of salvation through childbirth. Worth noting here is the reality that some women are left childless. A reading of this verse alone would suggest that women who are without children cannot be saved because she would lack the Lord's blessing. Do you think that really could be the case? Does the Lord really operate that way? And we have to answer, of course not. That would go against his own desire for, for all people to be saved in verse 4 of Second Timothy, or 1 Timothy chapter 2. At the same time, it would also go against his character. His character is a just God. Why would he make somebody unsavable, dependent upon their own ability, when it's something they have no control over? And so we must be cautious to think less of anybody because they don't have children. That's not a sign of lack of God's favor. It's really an indication that the Lord's will is just something different for them, and that's okay. But that does leave us asking then, what does it mean she will be saved through childbearing? What is she saved from? There are certain conclusions about this verse that have been offered routinely over the years. There are four that I just want to share with you so you have an understanding of what they are. Some of them, based on this text, are probably more reasonable than others. But at an initial glance, one of the most simple conclusions drawn by people is that a woman and her child are saved physically. They're kept safe during the process of childbirth, and there's no chance for physical death to occur. Birth can be a difficult and dangerous process. And so it is believed that this verse suggests that they will be preserved and safe during that process. That's not an unreasonable interpretation on this verse. And it is derived from that word used saved here. Because the Greek word that is used for saved in this text is really referring to physical salvation. 
When it says she will be saved, it's talking about her physical life. But if we look at human history, we can say with quite a bit of assurance, this is, cannot be a true interpretation. Because there are many godly women and many children who have not been physically saved through childbirth. So rather than believe in a physical salvation, others believe that it gives reference to a spiritual salvation. That she will be saved and find eternity in heaven through her childbearing. But if that were the case, then we would need the next part of verse 15. There would be no need for her to continue in faith or in love or holiness. She's already saved by childbirth. If a woman is saved by childbirth, she doesn't need to worry about her faithfulness. So that translation really doesn't seem likely as well either. And ultimately, it almost makes it a works-based salvation. There is a third view in this case, not speaking of childbirth only, but of a woman's relationship with her family and her function in the home. And so those who look at that view would say that a woman is saved simply by fulfilling her role as a woman. They may even go so far as to say that by staying at home, she is kept from the corruption of the world, and that's why she's saved. Yet, in today's world, with technology and things, that principle can't hold true because the world has access to our home through television and TV and phones and the internet. That corruption still comes into the home, and we willingly allow it in. So she's not protected in that way. And again, most importantly, it becomes a works-based theology again. It seems that by doing something, she will be saved, is what people would say. But again, that goes counter to the gospel of grace by our Lord Jesus Christ. So that can't be true either. And that takes us to this fourth view, which suggests that her salvation is not just hers alone, but it's speaking of the birth of Jesus Christ, by which all people are saved. This points back to Genesis 3.15, when the Lord promises judgment on Satan. And he said, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so then coming to 1 Timothy, it's thought that this must refer to the childbirth endured specifically by Mary, which brought forth Jesus Christ into the world. And so by all of it, all people are saved, including women. Of all the views, in one sense, that sounds the most reasonable, and it's not a bad understanding. It's true that by childbirth, all women were saved when Christ was born. Yet, that doesn't seem to fit the full context and construction of this verse. The context does talk about the fall in verses 13 and 14. But it's also speaking of an individual woman, and is speaking to women in general, and her personal responsibility for bearing children. And so it seems more likely that there's another interpretation in view here. Because that word saved is a reference to something physical, and she is told of her need to continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control, I would say it seems that the salvation being spoken of here is in relation to who she is outwardly, something to do with her testimony of faithfulness. 
And so looking at this verse, her salvation in this case is physical. That by childbearing, she is saved from something earthly. I would say she is saved from the stain of her testimony that came from Eve's fall. Whether we want to admit it or not, there is a particular view of women as lesser that permeates most of the world. That view dates back to the fall. And that view has become a woman's testimony. And what is taking place in this verse is exactly what we've seen in the previous two weeks. The messages of verse 9 and 10 and 11 and 14, they are, they're, we see that the Lord is preserving a woman's testimony, that he's protecting her. The Lord's instructions are actually showing a woman's honor. Verse 15 simply just continues that theme. She is saved from her testimony as being viewed weak. But to understand that, we need to understand, second, the context. The context, despite what my notes say there. I must have got everything out of order. That's fine. We look at the context, and notice where this text begins. Yet, yet she will be saved. That's a connecting word, showing that this verse flows from the previous verse. The two are joined together, they're connected, and they cannot or should not be disconnected. They shouldn't be separated. And what is said in verse 15, then, is dependent upon what is said in verses 13 and 14, which is a discussion of the fall, of what took place between Adam and Eve when they, they gave way to Satan's solicitations. And so the context we need to understand here is the fall. So I want you to turn with me back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and I want to read verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read them fast, just for the sake of time. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did you actually, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, God, among the trees of the garden. It is here that we find the description of when sin entered the world. And at the start of that story, it begins with Eve. She was the first one to succumb to Satan's solicitations here. And then at the very end, knowing that they had done wrong, 
Verse 8 says, Adam and Eve, they, they hid themselves from God. Of course, there's no hiding from God. And so Adam and Eve are revealed. They're found. And then the Lord confronts them for their sin. And he hands out judgment. Let me take a moment to remind you from last week that Adam bears a tremendous responsibility for his sin, for his role in this. That's something that is conveyed very clearly by Romans chapter 5, among other passages, but especially there. However, the context of our text is women. And so the emphasis here is on women. Paul's already dealt with Adam elsewhere and already talked about his condemnation in his other writings. And so we, we talk here about women but as the Lord gives out judgment, he judges them both guilty. Notice what it says in verse 16 of Genesis 3. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That's a woman's judgment there. We live in a world today where the view of a woman is that she is weaker. This is a stigma that follows women of every generation. It's not unwarranted based on the story of the fall. Eve willingly followed Satan, and she let herself be deceived by him. Indeed, in that moment, she does show weakness. She wasn't strong enough to resist Whenever somebody falls into sin, what do we say? Oh, it was a moment of weakness. That's how it's described. So in that moment, Eve does show weakness. But 1 Timothy 2.15 redeems all women. When we think of the process of childbearing and the, from conception to birth, that process is quite extraordinary. The physical changes that women undergo to accommodate a child and, and the pain then that is endured at birth, both of those are significant. There is absolutely no way a person can look at that entire process and conclude that women are weaker. Quite the opposite. We see a person who is quite strong. So while the fall imposed this stigma of weakness, God's creation of a woman as a bearer of children shows otherwise. What's really fascinating about this is that God's judgment for Eve's sin, it's not just punitive. It's not just discipline. Once again, it was a means of protecting her. Though people may say she is weak, God's judgment says, no, she's actually really strong. Return for a moment back to the concern then for those women who, who have not and cannot bear children. Is she weaker then? Again, I would say no. Can she re be redeemed from the stigma of the fall? And I would say yes, because the fact that any woman is designed by God to bear children shows a woman's strength, regardless of if she's actually endured that process or not. Even though she may not have children, there is a possibility for children. As we saw with Hannah, whether a woman has a child or not, is, it's at the Lord's discretion. But even the possibility that she can bear them is indicative 
of the strength as the Lord has created her. And that by itself should be sufficient enough to remove the stigma of weakness that came as a result of the fall. This should teach us something very critical then. We live in a culture that says a woman's value will be fully realized when she can do all that a man does and that she will never be satisfied until she can achieve absolute equality with man, which they say meaning doing everything he can do. But first off, the gospel already says, no, they are equal. Everybody can be saved, man or woman. But the Lord has given, even more here, equal opportunity and status in his plan. And having different roles doesn't diminish that. In fact, those different roles and abilities shows her value even more. She's a being of intense worth because the Lord created her as distinctive from men. And so very crucial to understand is that she's valuable not when she can do everything that a man can do. She's valuable because she can do exactly what a man can't do. Her greatest satisfaction in life then will not be found in seeking a man's role, but in resting in her role as God has created her. That's the context of this verse, the context in which we should all live. As we move forward in this text, everything in verse 15 centers around that verb, will be saved. That word that refers to physical salvation of some sorts, as we've talked about. As in one who will have their life saved. The physical salvation here, as we saw, saving a woman from the earthly stigma she would carry. But then Paul does add a spiritual element, a spiritual condition to the word. And so he moves from the physical salvation to bring in an element of spiritual salvation, saying, yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And so what I want you to know third is the condition the conditions here. Notice another transition takes place, not just from physical salvation to spiritual salvation, but it also changes subjects. It goes from a discussion about women saying she will be saved to now saying something about multiple people, saying if they, if they follow or continue in faith, who's they? Our first thought is a woman and a child. But the people being discussed in the context of our passage for many weeks now has been both men and women. That's how verse 9 starts, talking about men. Verse 10 then goes into, or verse 8 is about men. Verse 9 goes into women. And then later on we have Adam and Eve. We have both. So that they here would be men and women in relationship to their role as in childbearing, thus the role as parents. There's a literature device in play here. You don't need to know it, but just to kind of get an idea, it's called a synecdoche. And what that refers to is when an author uses something in part, but it actually represents the whole. And an example I'll give you, although that's not quite the same thing, is when Paul says, I preach Christ crucified. Is that all that Paul preaches? No, that part Christ crucified stands for the entire gospel. 
so that Paul preaches everything from his life, death, burial, and resurrection. So that Christ crucified just represents the whole. Same thing is playing here. That when he writes of childbearing, he's also talking about child rearing, raising them up. Childbearing, though, is only something women can do, hence the focus on women in that first part of the verse. But child rearing requires the participation of both parents. Both parents have a responsibility towards their children. And specifically, we, we see that fathers have a spiritual responsibility, as do all of us. Ephesians 6.4 brings in, in parents and, and talks of their ability. It says, parents, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Colossians 3.21, same thing. Parents, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. As parents, they have a responsibility to steward and shepherd their children towards the Lord. But the ability to do that is dependent upon their own ability or their own relationship with the Lord. A parent cannot have a weak relationship with the Lord and expect that they're going to raise a child with a strong relationship with the Lord. And so we're given four characteristics here that a godly parent should follow in or continue. It begins with faith. Just as the first of the characteristics of faith, the relationship with the Lord also begins with faith. Faith is that belief that the Lord Jesus Christ indeed existed and died and in his resurrection was sufficient for all of salvation. Acts 16.31, And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household, conveying the idea that if you believe and walk in the ways of the Lord and teach your children that, then they'll probably follow suit. <laughs> First Peter 1.9 tells us that the result of faith is, is salvation of the soul. And so continuing faith is evidence of salvation. And it guards them from acting contrary to the other characteristics that are listed, leading their children that way too. But genuine faith then leads to genuine love, which is the second characteristic. One cannot truly love without having true faith, because God is love. Therefore, without faith in him, complete true love is impossible. The call for all believers is to flow from their faith with love by loving God and loving others. Such love can be expressed within the family. The call to love is seen in families, giving evidence of the Lord's work in their lives. First Ephesians 5.25 calls upon husbands, saying, Husbands, love your wives. And then Titus 2.4 brings us up further with women. And it is there that the older women are commanded to instruct the younger women. And what are they supposed to instruct the younger women in? It says, train the young women to love their husbands and children. And so love forms a relationship between those families. And then you notice this leads in into the next characteristic, holiness. That is the call to be set apart from the world's ways. As Romans 12, 2 suggests, Salvation is seen not in conformity to the way, world's ways, but in transformation into Christ's likeness. And so one who is eternally, spiritually saved, that person will set themselves apart from the world. Or rather, God will set them apart from the world, but the individual continues in it, as the text says. Within the family, the mother and the father 
Not only will both continue in it, but by their holiness, they will lead their children in holiness as well. As part of their role as shepherd and steward of their children on the Lord's behalf. Seeking to protect their children from the world's influence. This doesn't mean a lack of participation in the world, because if we're not involved in the world, we can't evangelize it. But it does mean to be guarded and that our participation in the world should be guided and guarded by God's call to holiness. And so that's how mother and father shepherd their children. And then we have this last word, self-control. I'm not sure that I prefer that translation, self-control, because I think it would be more appropriate to say with sobriety or sound judgment, because that's what the word truly means. Together, parents can lead their family but they must do so in a way that is shown through sound judgment. They're not prone to rashness or impulsiveness or even selfishness. But they are sober-minded, is what it means. Sober-minded in their judgment, wisely considering their family and wisely considering the Lord, bringing them before him and determining what they do. Why are these characteristics important? What is it about faith, love, holiness, and self-control that make them so important that they become the emphasis rather than anything else? Because those are characteristics of somebody who submitted their life to the Lord. Those who have faith, love, holiness, and self-control, whether man or woman, whether mother or father, they're in submission to the Lord. And so they've allowed their lives to come under his control or the control of the Holy Spirit and so the expectation is that they will lead their children that direction too. One day seeing their children come under the control of the Holy Spirit. Time will only tell what happens with children. The ultimate responsibility is between children and, and God. But if parents are leading them this way, then they've at least fulfilled their role as parents. Again, to shepherd and steward them on behalf of the Lord. As you look at this text, and really the whole content of verses 9 through 15, what we should see is that God has created men and women equally. Their value is not determined by who they are in their own roles, but by who they are in Christ. If people are always searching for their value and just who they are, they will never be satisfied. Because they will always be comparing themselves to others and then thinking there's something more. But a person will only be satisfied when they're satisfied in who they are as God has made them. And that's what I want you to note forth, the connotation, the connotation. If you've been here the last three Sundays, that shouldn't have been a surprise. My outline has been the same for every message these last three weeks. The charge, the context, the conditions, and the connotation. And the connotation here is that men and women are created equally but differently. Did you notice that point in this verse at all? This verse actually speaks to the issue of equality. And it's in that transition when it goes from talking about women only to talking about parents. When speaking of physical salvation, this text speaks of men in, in their roles and women in their roles. But when addressing the spiritual aspect of how people are saved... <coughs> the faith, the love, the holiness, the self-control, men and women are mentioned together because the Lord treats them the same. They're equal in his eyes, and his judgment of salvation is the same for each of them. 
It is a salvation by faith through grace for each of them. But equality doesn't mean that they are the same. As I've talked about repeatedly, God's perfect design is equality, but also in different functions, with each person fulfilling their role as God has designed according to his needs and desires of how things work. I had a friend share with me recently in something he was writing, a different context, but the example applies here. When we think about the physical body and what would happen if all of a sudden the kidney decided it wanted to be the heart? And what if the brain all of a sudden decided it wanted to take up the role of digestion? The body would cease to function. Every part is designed for a specific role, and each needs to fulfill that role for everything to work properly. The same principle is true here. Men and women are designed for godly purposes, and when we get outside of those purposes, failure will result. The body shuts down. As an example, we've been talking about this in the context of Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And what is being established here is rooted in the creation and the fall of humanity. So how do women avoid the fate of Eve, who was deceived? By adhering to their God-given roles. And how do men avoid the fate of Adam, who was led into sin? By adhering to his God-given role. Once again, God's design just shows his protection. But now we've taken it from the physical and into eternal. When everyone submits to our roles, we're giving indication that we're submitting to the Lord. It shows us that we trust his ways are right and true and perfect. And though sometimes we don't like it or sometimes we don't understand it, we will follow it because we trust the Lord. In fact, that's the very definition of disobedience, distrust. Disobedience is merely not trusting the Lord enough to follow him. Every time we disobey, basically we're saying, I don't trust his way. My way is probably better. That's what Adam and Eve did. That's what they conveyed by their disobedience, that they didn't completely trust the Lord, that there was something better out there for them. There was some sort of doubt about his way. They didn't trust it fully, and so they bit into the fruit. Our satisfaction in our roles then demonstrates our satisfaction in the Lord. And at the same time, we will never be truly satisfied until we are content in the roles that he has ordained. As we close, I want to put your attention on one final aspect of this verse, or these verses. If you go all the way back to the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul begins by writing about the discipline of prayer. But the aspect of prayer that he writes about is specific. First, it's a discussion of corporate prayer. But then it's about what topic do you remember even? The first verses of chapter 2 call on the church to pray together as a body of Christ for the purpose of seeing the gospel go out. And then verse 4 says that the Lord desires all people to be saved. People are saved in many ways. If you ask somebody for their testimony, you will hear a variety of different ways. When parents or when people follow him, you'll hear how God captured their attention. None of our testimonies is the same. 
But what we've seen is one of those ways in which God captures people's attention is through parents. And specifically when parents are fulfilling their role according to how he has guided them. Everything we do, everything we're instructed to do, it all goes back, it's, it's meant to enhance that objective, to see people see the Lord. And so everything we do should be guided by the desire to see them drawn into a relationship with him. That's all that's going on here. The roles of a husband and wife, mother and father, men and women, are all towards that objective of seeing people come to the Lord. And then if you think about this further, we, we talk much in the Christian life about God meeting our desires and our wants. But rarely do we talk about us meeting God's desires. The Lord's desire in verse 4 is that all be saved. It is pleasing to him when people come to him through his son Jesus Christ and are saved. What does this mean then? It means that by fulfilling our roles, we actually have an ability to please the Lord, to meet his desire. It's easy to say we can please the Lord by just obeying him. But here we see specifically how following his will and what he has designed for us will please him. And all of this points out to what we have seen about women all along. They are valuable because of how the Lord has made them. She's valuable because of her character, her capabilities, and her condition, all of which were given to her by Christ at her creation. And so we cannot allow the culture to frame things in such a way that we do not allow us to see that the value of a woman is high. But she is valuable not because of her position in the culture. She is valuable because of her condition in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, as we continue to come before you in our lives, Lord, I pray that these verses that we've looked at continue to confound us and to make us amazed by you, that we see your perfect will and your perfect ways, Lord, and Father, may it cause us to trust you more. Father, may we see the roles that you've given both men and women, not as a sign of limiting us, but rather it is in those roles that you've designed us to thrive the most and bring the most glory to you. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be our desire, to love you, honor you, praise you, glorify you by walking in your revealed will for us in the roles that you've designed for us, Lord. And so, Father, we thank you for your perfect wisdom and your perfect creation in designing us all out. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.